0: podcast is part of the sports social podcast network
1: like this podcast why not try double century my podcast on the history of cricket want to know why england's first test keeper was in jail or the moment when we learned to hit the ball over our heads find double century in all of your greatest podcast apps This week we have a T20 cricketer who in the last five years has the fourth best bowling average and the fourth best economy rate. Benny Howe, and I'm a professional cricketer. Benny comes on to talk about his wild career so far and how he's been overlooked despite his incredible record, how baseball changed everything, and what part his ADHD has played in him becoming the cricketer he is. First time we met, you said to me very early on that I'm a bit different to a normal bloke. That has stuck with me. That's Probably the opening of my piece that I wrote about you. You are very different to modern cricketers. Is that something that is on your mind a lot?
0: Yeah, it has been anyway. I mean, I've learned to deal with it and accept it. But for a long time, I was always concerned about what people thought because I was always told I was a bit different, I was a bit strange, you know, I was a bit weird. And I guess it takes a toll on you when you're getting told that a lot, The beginning my career I sort of didn't really care and then as my career sort of progressed I think I started thinking a lot about it but I'm sort of gone back to the first phase where I actually don't care anymore. <laughs> you started off as a batsman at Hampshire
1: and it was an incredible time you started quite early didn't you You quite a young cricketer when you came through but I'm just going to run off a couple of names that I think were at Hampshire while you were there Jimmy Adams, Michael Carberry, John Crawley, Michael Lum and this other bloke Kevin Peterson it's not a bad batting lineup that they had there. You must have looked around occasionally and thought to yourself, I'm going to struggle to push this.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, every time you thought you had a sniff, you did well in the second team. Um, there's always a, a big signing uh, or a signing from another county and you'd always be put on the back burner. So, uh, yeah, it was always a bit of a struggle at Hampshire in, in that regard. And I didn't bowl at all then, so I didn't have that option.
1: You could bowl like little medium pace, but back then there wasn't really a thought that you were going to be an all-rounder or anything, was there?
0: It was like outside chat of it, but yeah, not genuine because I wasn't fast and they wanted me, oh yeah, your bowling could be handy and, you know, the old traditional bowl, middle overs, wicket to wicket sort of thing. I was like, okay, sure. It didn't really excite me, but I'll, I'll do it. <laughs> Batting was definitely the way I was looking to go back then. And I guess that changed towards the end of my career at Hampshire and then started Gloucestershire. Well, more, more started Gloucestershire, I think that changed.
1: So with Hampshire, I think I remember you saying to me, I think before that you were bred to be quite arrogant down there. It was quite a club on the move, the Rose Bowl or GS Bowl, whatever the bowl is called on this particular day. Was you were there around that time, you know, Brandsgrove was there. It's a the club of Mark Nicholas, you know, Shane Warren sweets and all these sorts of things. It's quite a, a glamorous place to play. Did any of that sort of stuff affect your cricket or did it help being with a bigger club at that time?
0: It's hard to say, but you certainly brought up in that culture. Confident, I'd say. We would definitely joke as, as obnoxious young sort of professional cricketers. We would joke about the counties of Gloucestershire and Derbyshire and Leicestershire. And when when we weren't playing, you know, some of us young lads in the in the dressing room playing the second team and we also singing oh let's all go to derby let's all go to gloucester all sort of obnoxious uh chat to be honest but i think it's the way we we're brought out we were looked after really well and they sort of treated you like you're an athlete a lot of counties i see it's, when i started at Gloucestershire wasn't the case so yeah we were very fortunate in that regard so that was it was a good thing but it was also maybe gone a bit ahead of ourselves at times
1: it's all right i'm ahead of myself almost all the time benny we're, we're okay so you are looking around the the sort of change room and with the, those batsmen that you have, and it starts to unravel towards your end of your time with Hampshire. So if I remember this correctly, you took a holiday without telling the coaches. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Well, take me through that. How does that happen? At
0: the time, I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. I guess that's where probably my ADHD kicks in, where I, I, I'm very impulsive and I, I don't really think things through. But I wasn't involved in the first team match. I think they were away in a championship match. Somewhere up north. There's no second team matchups that week. And I was like, well, might as well go on holiday then. So I went to France. It was Paris. It was a good time. Then I went to Malaga, which was I was impressed with that city, but <laughs> overall it wasn't there. Probably wasn't the right move until I got the call from the coach while I was out there saying, Yeah, you gotta come back quick and we have to have a chat. Didn't really sink in until then.
1: Did you tell him what a good time
0: you had though? No, I left that bit out, but I, I didn't really no, I was doing the wrong thing but now I can probably see why I was doing the wrong thing because you know he he made the point of what if they needed a 12th man or I'm being paid by Hampshire you're not paid to go on holiday you didn't let us know and I was all oh, honestly even to this day like I, I didn't think I was doing anything wrong when I decided to take that trip yeah looking back now I was like yeah okay I, I wouldn't do that again but I guess I wasn't aware of it I, it is what it is
1: and that was the end of your – I'm not saying that directly led to you leaving Hampshire, but that was that the end of your time with Hampshire?
0: That pretty much directly led to it. But that was the feather that broke the camel's back, if you like. There was a lot of times where I was late and I was a bit disruptive, very disorganised and everything like that, and sort of affected the team. Generally, I think, you know, they didn't like the young sort of punk thing like that, and you learn your lessons. But at the time, it was – I guess I just didn't know how to handle that sort of side of things, the organisational side, so – I would like to say I'm I'm better now. (laughs) Had you been
1: diagnosed with ADHD at that point?
0: I had as a kid in school, but as soon as I left school, I just, I don't know, we forgot about it and just thought, you know, it it would go away just fine once you're an adult. It's something you have as a kid. I didn't even realize I had anything for a number of years until I went to Gloucester after my first season where something wasn't right. And then I thought it was depression. It wasn't that. And then eventually it led to the ADHD again. So yeah, at the time I didn't actively know I had it.
1: So you were pretty confident of getting another county after you left Hampshire, I suppose partly because you you come from a major county, so you figured that some of the other smaller counties would be looking for a pro, and it actually ends up being quite hard. And one of the reasons is that you have this reputation by this point of being, well, not good with time, I suppose is the most one, but maybe you're not putting in enough. You didn't know that much about those rumours at that point, did you?
0: No, I had no idea. I didn't know anything about anything outside... So, yeah, I guess I guess that might have been the starting point where I started thinking, actually, people are saying stuff about me. And then I started being a bit more self-conscious and I think that escalated a bit throughout my career. I've lost the sheer worry about what people thought. I did think it was going to be easy and obviously it wasn't, but luckily I, I got an opportunity, so that was good.
1: But even that opportunity when you went to Gloucester, it's, it's quite a weird story looking back on it. So Dave Fulton, who's obviously now with Sky Sports News, was an agent at the time. So he must have just retired from Kent, I assume, after he had the eye injury. So he sees that you need a team. He goes out to help you. And he basically has to force you onto Gloucestershire, so much so that by the time you join them, you joined them basically sleeping on sofas, didn't you?
0: Or was it in a hotel maybe, perhaps? And unpaid, wasn't it? So he picked me up. From my actual flat in Southampton, I came back from my winter season playing in Australia, uh, grey cricket in Melbourne. And I went back, I was like, right, play some cricket somewhere, you know, the second team. I'd just go back to my house in the flat in Southampton. And he picked me up on that pre season day when Gloucestershire had, you know, playing Oxford Parks and said, right, John Brazil's not getting back to me, we're going to him. So that was where it all started. And we went there and he's, it was hilarious, actually. We're walking around the, the field and we saw John the other side of the pitch sitting on the bench, just like on his phone. Day four was like, let's give him a call. <laughs> so we give him a call. We see John Bracewell look up at his phone, and then he just puts it back down. And doesn't answer. So all right, well we're gonna have to walk around and speak to him. So yeah, from pretty much from then, I said, look, I want to play. You know, I think I'm good enough. Blah blah blah. He said, okay, we haven't got any money. We're not gonna pay you. Speak to Owen Dawkins, who's running the second team, and you know, we'll pay you in the second team. And so that's where it started. Got a, a pair in the first game, so it didn't really start that well. But it was all right. The next game, I got double hundred, which kicked it off.
1: And when they say they're not going to pay you, you would get paid, I assume, for actually playing in the game or not at all?
0: Yeah, no, you get paid. Like every person in the second team, I think, you get paid like £100 for the yeah. game, £120 for the game or a day. I can't really remember, but not, just enough just to pay for your whatever expenses and stuff. But um, So once they decided I, I was going to play in the first team, the first championship game of the season, I wasn't getting paid I was getting paid per game I think it was maybe a thousand they paid me for a month or 1200 a month which was nothing but just like to pay three or four games in a month and they put me up in um the worst hotels like that honestly I was in a room that was smaller than a small bathroom with one single bed and I was living out of my car because it was they paid for like two nights and then because there wasn't a game one day I'd have to check out live pretty much be in my car and then the next day I'd have to check in again and so it wasn't like I had any stuff, and I had—I remember having a microwave in the back seat of my car because so I'm, I'm eating out each night. You know, it's going to get expensive, so I got a microwave I bought into the hotel room, so I could actually have not the healthiest of meals, but at least cheaper.
1: Save yeah. some money.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was interesting times.
1: <laughs> Make that double hundred, and from then on in, everything sort of becomes quite rosy. They offer you a contract by was it June or July? I think they'd offered you a contract.
0: Yeah, they did then. So yeah, I played, I remember, I didn't really feel any pressure. After the payout, I was pretty almost down and out. And then I remember going into the game, I think it was Surrey second team, I was like, I don't really care. I literally didn't care at all. And that's probably what made me play that innings. And then I, from then I was just like, oh, this is great. And then I did pretty well, did well enough to, to get offered a three-year contract in about June, July. And then that was it, really.
1: So at that stage, you're a professional cricketer and you could go on to be, you are still a very competent batsman, even though clearly I have not got you on to talk about your batting at all. But you are a very competent batter. You would have gone on to have, you know, a decent county career. Probably, as you said, would have pulled your little medium paces. At some stage, you're playing cricket, though, in Melbourne. I don't think it was when you were with Essendon, was it? It was when you were playing with another team?
0: The next year, the Essendon was the winter before I went, trial at Gloucestershire so the next year I think I just played in the the South Caulfield I play for. it was a not a great team yeah it was a one of the suburban teams
1: so you're back in Australia in Melbourne which is where all great things are created let's be honest you start playing some baseball and you're an outfielder weren't you were you you center fielder
0: yeah they chucked me at right field first they always chuck the newbies at right (laughs) field because they probably get less hits there but um yeah I went and played baseball like in the Malvern Braves, I think they're called. And um, I wanted to play because I fell in love with it as soon as I went on holiday at the end of the season at Grosje. I went for two weeks in Miami and I watched the Marlins versus the Phillies, actually. It was an absolute dead rubber game. But I was fascinated because I hadn't actually properly watched a baseball game before. And from there, I was obsessed with the pitcher and how he was changing it up and everything like that. So I was like, yeah, I have to play baseball. A, want to hit a home run and B, I want to just like throw random pitches. So, yeah, they started me off at right field, went to center field, and the Mulvane threes actually won a trophy that year, which I was a part of, which was great.
1: Did you do relief pitching when you were with them, or were you just mucking around?
0: So, I'd be in the outfield and then I'd be like, I'd close off because I I throw quite hard. So, they just go, just throw strikes. So, I just say, all right, I'll throw strikes. And um, the catcher always just do the one sign because he knew I was just throwing fastballs. It wasn't like the greatest standard. I was like shaking my head, no, no, I want to throw a knuckle. I want to throw a curveball. <laughs> and he was like, all right, sure, whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's how it started.
1: So you come back then to the UK, and how quickly do you start putting all these things into practice in a cricket sense?
0: Straight away, pretty much. I started bowling it that winter. I, was like, I didn't really think anything of it. I was like, you know, I'm a medium pace. I might as well try a few change-ups other than the cutter and, and the standard sort of slow balls. And I bowled it. And something happened, like I started doing stuff, Backs were like, what is this? And it just pretty much kicked off straight away. I can't remember how long it took me to get it right, but I think I remember being able to bowl it quite accurately straight away. It was starting to understand like the grip and release points after that, like the specific, the movement of your fingers on the ball and all that sort of really detailed stuff as I bowled it more. But at first, I actually bowled it accurately. It wasn't that hard. When I'm my pace, you've got to start doing things with it. and And that's what I learned to do.
1: So, you, I, you know, I talk to a lot of guys like you who are T20 gurus who, who play around. And Harry Gurney, for instance, will say he only needs three slow balls. And, you know, there are other guys with one good slow ball that they go in with. Part of your personality is this ability to keep moving on and to keep creating really so you could have stopped with one knuckleball and been a fairly successful occasional bowler but you then have gone on to grow i don't know what your current number of soul balls is as you always tell me they're in they're in different stages of development but you have upwards of you know 30 40 50 different creations that you've been working on how did that come about once you had one good one why did you keep changing
0: Good question. One, I love, I just see new things and I love it. I just, wow, that, look at that pitch. Oh, what if I hold it like this? Something, it made it just like, it was just, I was naturally drawn to that. It was just like a passion, number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, I remember after the first season, I kept the, the, the blast. I did I top wicket-taker and um, I remember that winter they hadn't seen me in Bangladesh and I did well there. When I bowled, they didn't see enough ball. It came out nice. But then I thought, Well, I've seen me once, they're just going to wait on the slower ball and they know I've got this ball now. And I just thought, no, I can't just have this. I've just got to keep developing. So actually I started just changing the knuckle. So I I watched it, a lot of it would swing away the knuckle if I held the seam right. And I would just start changing things up like that. First with the knuckle. And then as the next season came on, I was like, right, I want to get this split because I think I can be a bit faster than knuckle and it will move just like the knuckle a bit faster. I sort of took on the, the role of like a spinner would do with varying his sort of pace like that. But with the slower balls, rather than just bowling a seamer and then a slower ball, I would try and like well six levels and over, but just the variance of pace and certain drifts and angles and stuff would deceive them like that. And it, it would be very subtle, but I'd work hard at doing that because I knew I had to because people, once they see you, they start working things out.
1: And it's just staying ahead of the game then at that point. And also, I think you told me when you walk around, you quite often have a cricket ball in your hand anyway. So a lot of it is, it's not as scientific perhaps as what, not all of them are scientific. You end up doing the scientific stuff and then, you know, you send them through to me on WhatsApp and, and I try and work them out. But before that, a lot of it is just you with the cricket ball in your hand, isn't it?
0: Pretty much. Yeah. I, I think I, um, one of the balls I started, I've rolled more of it now. I actually caught a cricket ball. Like my, finger here just went like that and the ligament it hasn't actually it's still like very loose so basically it means i can get a real wide split on the ball which is something different which i hadn't done before i was like oh you know i was holding a cricket ball i was like well maybe i can use this as a ball and i start bowling it and it would roll off one finger really nicely and i wouldn't have to try and change any arm angle or speed it would just come off the finger which is ideal i don't have to think about it too much so little things like that i'd figure out and i'd also watch loads of baseball videos and pictures and see what sort of grips they have and see if i'm going to adopt it to bowling Uh, don't get me wrong there's a lot of balls i try and it's absolute garbage but there's some that will come out that are nice
1: (laughs) one thing that's interesting about you and i think that cricket is starting to work this out but we used to talk about slow balls and i talk more the commentators and and the media and the fans they used to talk about slow balls of being slow i mean it's in the name isn't it whereas your balls and this actually sort of came back to bite you a little bit because england were looking at it that way as well There's not a big differential in your pace between your slowest ball and your quickest ball, the way that Tamal Mills is probably 40 kilometers an hour difference in his pace. And we see a lot of guys like that out there. Your slower balls aren't working because they're slower. They're actually working because of the revolutions being different, the way that they react off the pitch. Maybe they drop. That's actually why your deliveries are successful, despite the fact that you're bowling most balls between, what, 70 and 75 miles an hour.
0: At one point, I was like, I've got to get faster. I've got to be able to stay up with the guys who are bowling that's up to 80, 85 miles an hour. And that that was never going to happen. There's only a certain amount you can probably put on in a certain amount of time. And I was like, no, no, I need to think differently here. And I I guess I was thinking maybe a finger spinner. He's not someone who's like a mystery spinner, but he is very, you know, like the Vittori's of the world and all the good finger spinners where they vary their pace slightly, vary their rotation of the they get them very subtly. And I looked at that and I was like, oh, well, what if I can do that with my slower balls? Because I haven't got the pace to, or the mystery like in that sense. to bamboos a batsman, I can do it with the, the, the subtle variations of my slower balls. That's my strength. So that's that sort of route I went down. And I guess I've been looked at as a seamer like the others who has slower balls. So maybe that will change me. but that's changing. I don't know. But I just got to try and keep performing and doing what I do best, I guess.
1: It's very interesting. I mean, you know that I've tried to sell you to cricket teams around the world. And when you talk to people, the language that they have around you is so different to what I've seen from your record. And also other than a couple of batsmen who've tried to work you out, probably no one has studied you more than I have, because I think eventually there'll be lots of many hours. I I think, you know, that's how cricket will go. So I I find it very interesting that Basically, I'm, I'm told that your, the wickets where you play on are terrible, and that's why you take wickets, and they include Bangladesh in that. Another thing I'm told is that if you played on better wickets, your record wouldn't be as good. So I've looked into you on good wickets. I've looked into you on bad wickets. I've looked into you playing on test wickets. Your record holds up everywhere. Like It's not as good on good wickets, but you wouldn't expect that for any bowler ever. But I think that when I looked at your record for test wicket, playing on England test grounds, and I think it was on Caribbean test grounds as well, Your bowling average was still like 21 or 22, which is pretty good considering they are considered to be the best wickets on earth. What you're doing is so unlike what anyone else has done. I mean, the fact that you're saying that you based part of your bowling on baseball and the other part on Dan Vittori, there aren't that many people that would say that. It's a hard sell, isn't it? And everyone is always looking for the reason why you won't work rather than the reason that you do
0: work. Yeah, it's been frustrating, I guess. I've learned to just accept it now, but. I guess it is frustrating, I guess, the mindset that they use and without the lack of data and, and knowledge, like you said there, because given no matter what wicket you play on, if it's the worst wicket for a batter, then obviously it's better for most bowlers, right? And if it's a better wicket for a batter, it's now it's harder for you know, most bowlers. But if I'm not going to do as well on good wickets, but most bowlers aren't either unless they're bowling 95 plus and at the six. Do you know what I mean? So I guess it's frustrating that they haven't looked at the data like that, but hopefully that will change.
1: It's not just about that. Hopefully the piece that I wrote and now that you've started writing pieces and being more active about it. But when I first started talking to people about you, if they weren't downplaying all your achievements because of dodgy wickets, the other thing they said was that you're a bit of a a strange person and a loose person. And people kept saying that you're autistic. I actually learned more about autism and ADHD and how the two are confused writing about you that I probably have anywhere else in my life because people kept bringing it up. Because you are nothing like anyone else as a person and also as a cricketer, it's made you the cricketer you are, but it's also been a bit of a problem perception-wise.
0: Yeah, I think so. I don't, it's hard to hear that people sort of judge you who don't really know you. I guess the people who know me know exactly what I'm like and I'm pretty sure they like me, So, and I'm definitely a team player, so... And also the bad wicket thing. I'm not. I thought that was a little bit of a myth because Bristol's not a bad wicket. If you've seen it, it's, it's we play on like tiny boundaries as well. It's not a bad wicket at all. It has its days, but geez, it's it's all right. You know, I think that's a general misconception.
1: I think that's fair. The other thing is that when I look at you, I look at you guys had a really good bowling attack a couple of times, and you had similar bowlers to yourself bowling. So you had Pereira and Andrew Tyne. I know you're a bit different to them, but in that they are slow ball dependent seamers. And you were out bowling them. So as far as I'm concerned, if Andrew Tyre is traveling around the world and he's ending up there. So it's a very interesting thing. But I think a lot of this comes back to, and I'm not sure if you and I have talked about this before, but in 2015 World Cup, you sent out a tweet. England were playing poorly and you said that there might be a lot of spaces available now for cricketers who are playing well. That tweet ends up being attached to you. And I know what it's like because I'm a bit of a different bloke. And sometimes I say things in the moment, and it's only three years later you realize that everyone has been going, but that's the bloke who said that. And you don't even know that that's a thing. Do you remember that tweet? And do you remember anyone
0: ever bringing it up with you? No one's brought it in there. None of that. Yeah, that's the thing. I, I guess I did a lot of things back <laughs> when I was, I guess, less mature.
1: <laughs> but it's a really interesting thing because you were quite young at that stage. It was probably the point when you had just gone to Gloss not long around that period, wouldn't you? So, it's, it's, but it's a really interesting thing that people don't really share any of that sort of stuff with you. And you're off in your own bubble trying to get better as a cricketer. And then there are, there are simple things like in the last five years of T20 cricket, you have the fourth best average of any bowler and you have the fourth best economy. The only guy who has, I think, a better average and a better economy than you combined is Rashid Khan. And he seems to be doing okay for himself, whereas it's still the hard sell for you. You know, you played the Bangladesh Premier League. You did really well. And then the next year you went back and you're on the bench. You went into the T10 competition one year. Did you play much in the T10? Two games. Two games. And yet we're still in a situation where I know you've done quite well in the 100 draft. You certainly weren't one of the last players picked. You did okay there. But considering how well you have done in your career, it seems to be that permanent thing. And you haven't played for the England Lions yet. You've created such a niche for yourself that it's almost like no one wants to bring you out of it. It's such a random career.
0: Yeah, I know. And, and the draft thing is, as well, if you're talking back to people, like, say, judging or, like, attaching me to a certain bloke, I remember Dan Vittori, I mean, he wasn't the coach, but he was the assistant coach doing the draft with, uh, I think, Dan Weston, the other analyst. But anyway, he Dan Vittori is my coach in a 10 If he's thought I was such a weird bloke, then why would he pick me again at a decent price? You know, that sort of thing. So but people don't look at that. Yeah, And I also think the other thing, because I'm a an all-rounder, and I'm in that bracket as an all-rounder, my batting hasn't been up to par, then you look at people. So I've heard they put people in sections, fast bowler, spin bowler, top order batter, power hitter, all-rounder, for example. And I'm in the all-rounder section. And if you compare me to the other all-rounders, like your Ravi Boparas and your Ben Stokes and all the Moeen Ali's and stuff, you're like, I'm nowhere near them, which is true. I'm nowhere near them with the bat. But the ball, I don't see myself as an all-rounder. I see are. Oh, I'm not gonna get in as a batter. I'm in, I'm in as a bowler, because that's mm. what my stats suggest. So I guess i have been put in that bracket as well. And yeah. that's up to me as well to, to perform better with the bat. That's that's on me. But
1: No, that's interesting. So when I sell you the team, so I'm trying to think the last time I tried to sell oh, the last time I tried to sell you was Edinburgh Rocks. So I was there on the draft day and They wanted wrist spinners, and I said, look, you can get a wrist spinner, but what you can also get is Benny Howell, who will basically do what a wrist spinner does because he takes wickets in the middle overs, but also he can field because he's a good athlete. And I said, look, you may not want him batting at four or five, but what you could do is you could bat him at seven or eight and then bring him up the order and use his batting as like a backup if there's early wickets because we know he's a first-class batsman and those sorts of things. But a lot of those conversations are not being had in T20 because you are so at the cutting edge. There's never been a spinner-seamer like you before since maybe Sid Barnes. uh, Even someone like Pat Brown and Mustafiza, they're both still essentially seamers who put rotations on the ball, whereas you're a complete other
0: hybrid. They're in the Andrew Tye bracket, aren't they, really? Probably, yeah. yeah. Fast bowlers who bowl good slow balls.
1: Yeah, definitely. So what I want to know is how much of... The cricketer that you've become, do you think you can attest to having ADHD? Because I think I wrote about this in the piece when I wrote about you. So in basketball, everyone knows that the best way to shoot a free throw is basically underhanded with backspin on it, right? And yet in the history of the NBA, a handful of players have ever done it. And you've seen players like Wilt Chamberlain and Shaquille O'Neal, who could have been 10% better if they'd been better from the free throw line not do it even though they know it's better there are a lot of guys they have the hand strength that you have they are probably slightly faster bowlers than you and maybe they're even all-rounders so they have the ability to add it onto their batting the way that you have but they don't do it and they don't commit to it the way that you have so i would say that there's something in you as a human being that has done that and do you think that's the adhd or is it just you as a person
0: it's hard to say i think me as a person and ADHD are sort of the same thing, so I guess a bit of both. If, if that answers your question, but yeah, I think in terms of initially being very, ADHD personalities we're very hyper focused on certain things. If it's something that interests us, and impulsive. So I guess if I see something that I like, I'll be hyper focused on it. When I started the knuckle, I saw the knuckle, I was obsessed with it. So it's a hyper focus on that. So I guess that is got to do with my ADHD, but also. I guess it was my passion I'm very passionate about learning new things all the time as a bloke so I guess it is a bit of both and I think it's definitely the route I'm going down so I've still I've still got passion to play for England I still believe I can I've got a few things I've got to do with that I've got to improve with the batting I've got to try and really nail that when I get a chance and just keep developing my bowling and keep doing what I do and if they want to pick me that's great but if they don't at least I've like you said I've got a niche and I'm just going to carry on learning and developing new balls like so at the minute, I haven't been able to bowl from full run for a while since my injury. I've just been bowling about eight months of leg spin. So we'll see what happens. You never know. I might be able to come and roll out a few Rashid howls <laughs> at one point <laughs> as a change. If, if they really want to wrist spin, I'll just go and do that <laughs> when it's ready.
1: And would you say that you're unafraid to try new things in a way that other professional – I mean, you and I both know a lot of professional athletes. There's this conformity to being a professional athlete of having to do everything like someone else occasionally you get your type of athlete, which is completely different and basically rips up the rule book. Not because they want to rip up the rule book. It's not that you're so much a, of a rebel. It's just that your brain is wired differently. You're a different kind of person. So you do things your own way. That seems to me like a fairly rare thing within professional sport.
0: I think so. I mean, most people, they have their role models and that's who they want to be. They want to be an opening batter or they want to be a parrot, or fast bowler or spinner and, and they will try and achieve that from my experience of who, you know, the players I've played with and against. But for me, I look at where I'm at and I'm like, what could I be? Okay, I could be an all-round, I could bowl some seam, I could bowl some change-ups. And when I finish the game, what have I left? And it doesn't really excite me. So even if I did do that, I may well be a better cricketer than I am or I could be. Who knows? Who's to say? But I want to leave the game at least knowing that I've literally given it a good crack and like, if it does come off, then it will be pretty good. And I would have left a mark for people to come up and then people want to say, oh, I want to be the next Benny Howe. So I mean, I guess that is sort of been motivating me to do all this as well.
1: Beautiful. Thank you very much for coming on. No worries. Thank you for listening. You can follow my guest at Benny tweets underscore on the Twitters. I'm there as well. Please review on Apple podcasts or on each podcast platform you have access to This podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon. So thank you to everyone who does. And please, if you can help out, we would really appreciate if you could. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston is the producer, Mixmaster, Flash General. And the theme tune is called The Prisoners by The Red Cricket. Red Inca Listener Don't forget to also subscribe and listen to Double Century, a podcast where I trawl through old newspaper reports and bitter books from former players to tell the story of our great game. Find Double Century in your podcast apps.